John chapter 6, 646 to 51. I am the bread of life. John 6, 46. Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ, sending him into the world to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you that you gave him to us, that he might give his life for the life of the world, which is his flesh. We thank you, Father, that his body, his death on the cross, paid the penalty of our sins. We pray, Father, that each of us will understand this truth and not only understand it, but when we see the greatness of it, the goodness of it, the amazing gift that you have provided, may it not be that we discount it. May it not be that we reject it and walk away. But may it be that each of us believes in it, knowing that when we believe, we have eternal life. May eternal life be sweet and precious, important to us, that we consider all of these truths and believe them sincerely. In Christ's name, amen. Christ, he continues his discourse with the crowd, the crowd of the Jews. And in this section, it began in verse 41. The context of this part of his discourse in verse 41, because the Jews, the crowds of people, they complain because Jesus is saying that he came down out of heaven. How can this man that they know, who is the son of Joseph in verse 42, whose father and mother we know, they say, this man who's living in the house of Joseph and Mary, how is it that this man claims that he came from heaven? If he is physically known to them, how could it be, how could it be possible that he actually came down from heaven? Jesus then answers them that you will not comprehend this, you will not believe this, you will not follow this doctrine unless God permits you, unless God allows you, unless God draws you and teaches you. That's what he said in verses 44 to 45. He said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Christ is teaching them that they are perplexed, they are confused, they are grumbling because God the Father has not taught them secretly, miraculously, convinced them in their mind and heart that they must believe this gospel. God the Father has not done so. That's why they don't believe. Now, after saying the Father has not taught you that you have not heard and learned from the Father, that's why you don't come to me or that's why you don't believe in me. He clarifies in verse 46 that he's not saying 
that they have to see God physically to believe in him. In fact, he's saying the opposite. What he said in the previous two verses, 44 and 45, is that God mysteriously, God spiritually, God secretly, he teaches those that he is saving from sin. And those are the ones, his elect are the ones who end up believing in Christ. That's what he taught in verses 44 to 45. Having taught that, he clarifies in verse 46, he's clarifying in 46, not that any man has seen the Father. Jesus says, I'm not saying you have to actually see God with your physical eyes, that you have to see God tangibly, materially in this world for you to believe. He's not teaching that at all. In fact, he's teaching the opposite. He's saying that you have to believe based on what I'm telling you, what I'm teaching you, and based on the words of God that you have in your own hands. You have access to these words of God. I'm actually personally and visibly proclaiming these words to you, yet you refuse. You don't believe them. You don't believe what's written. And you don't believe what is being spoken by me as the personal and ultimate prophet of God and messenger of God, the ultimate apostle of God. I'm right here in your midst and you refuse to believe. 46. Not that any man has seen the Father. No one has had a personal exchange, a personal experience. No one has seen God the Father In that way, nor has anybody seen God the Father in His full glory. No one has had that kind or those kinds of experiences with God the Father. No one ever. No one has had an experience of seeing God here on the earth, having a dialogue with Him, God the Father, or no one has had a vision of God, seeing God the Father in all of His glory and even being in His presence and experiencing all of His glory. That's what he's teaching in verse 46. No one has seen the Father. If no one has seen the Father like that, we cannot say as a condition of faith, I am waiting for God to fully reveal Himself to me And then I will believe. People do that. People do that while they're living on the earth right now. They say, I'm not going to believe in Jesus Christ unless God comes and fully reveals himself right here in my presence. If I see him, if I hear him, if he performs miracles here, if he he, uh, utters his voice, his thunderous voice, then I'm going to believe. And others do, do it the... Um, the way of the day of judgment. What they say is, well, once I die and I meet God, and then if I see Him and He proves Himself to me, then I'm going to believe in Him. They actually do believe that. After I die and I'm in the presence of God, then if I'm convinced, I will believe in Him. However, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. Now is the day of salvation. Not then. Today is the day that you need to be saved. Don't wait for later. 
Then, these beliefs, false beliefs, have a fundamental false assumption that we don't have sufficient knowledge now. We don't have sufficient information now. We don't have sufficient revelation from God to us now for us to believe. Yet we do. In their case, in verse 46, the people had the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Those in Jesus' generation, they had Jesus himself in person, and they still did not believe. They had him, and they still did not believe. They sufficiently had Jesus Christ ministering among them, teaching and preaching among them, interacting with them, healing people of diseases, performing many miracles among them, dying on the cross and rising from the dead three days later, ascending into heaven. All of these things they saw, they had, then and there, at their time. And even this crowd, they just were fed to their full, to their stomach's satisfaction, earlier in this chapter. He just did a miracle, and they still refused to believe. This is the problem, that even though we have the ultimate messenger, the perfect messenger, it shows we will not believe. We can't say, well, those Jews in Jesus' day, they were extremely stubborn and we're better than they are. No, only somebody with pride would even presume to make those statements. No, we're no better than they are. We're just like they are. Our nature is just like their nature. We're just like them. So if Jesus were here, there's no, there's no guarantee that thousands of thousands or millions upon millions or even billions of people would truly believe in him and follow him. There's no guarantee of that. Even though he claimed that he had seen the Father. Even if he were to say that now, we would say no. He's a Samaritan. We would say, no, he's a Jew. If we're Gentiles, we'd say, he's a Jew. If he were here, we would say, he's insane. He's lost his senses. He's a crazy man. These are the kinds of things we would say. Just as they said of him in his day, we would say the same thing. Unless God changed our heart to believe in him. We would do the same. So, he claims that he has seen the Father. So, having seen the Father, knowing everything about the Father, he then says in verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He makes a solemn statement, a solemn declaration, prefacing it with truly, truly, I say to you. A double truly Plus, I say to you, he is announcing the words of God. He's announcing true and reliable words, faithful words, words that we must believe. He prefaces these words with this kind of statement. When he does so, he's drawing our attention to the fact that we should pay attention to what he's saying. Don't take it lightly. Don't be flippant about it. Don't say that you'll take a casual approach, that we people are too serious about the things of God when we say these things. That's what they were apt to say. They were prone to saying that. 
that Jesus did not know what he was talking about. But he does. And he's saying, truly, truly, I say to you. So when the scripture says that, all the more, we should say, truly, truly, what? Truly, truly, did what? What did Jesus say to us? Verse 47. He who believes has eternal life. He who believes has eternal life. Firstly, we notice this statement is a one plus one equals two statement. Is it not? He's not asking us to figure out um, the square root of a thousand plus fifty three minus uh, minus two thousand or something. He's not expecting us to compute that immediately in our mind, right? He's not announcing a complicated statement. He's announcing a very simple and short statement. Easily understood, is he not? He who believes has eternal life. It's important to note that because many people pick up the Bible and they say they don't understand the Bible. They don't understand the gist of the Bible. They don't understand the main point of the Bible. They don't know what the Bible is all about. In fact, Jesus had people like that. John chapter John chapter 10. John chapter 10 verse 24. John chapter 10 verse 24. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. How long will you keep us in suspense? Did Christ keep them in suspense? I thought throughout this book of John, starting in chapter 1, He has not been keeping them in suspense. He's been declaring from the beginning. And even John the Baptist was declaring even before Jesus preached from the very beginning who Christ was or who Jesus was. Right? John the Baptist was doing it since John chapter 1. So why would they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? Unless they are so blinded by their sin, they don't want to believe what's obviously being preached to them. And then they say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. He has not said it plainly. He has not said it clearly. What about John 6, 47? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And when he says he who believes has eternal life, he's not talking about believing in anybody. He's talking about believing in him. John 6, 48. I am the bread of life. So tell me, were they telling the truth? In John 10, 24. No. Jesus did not wait a long time. Jesus did not keep them in suspense for a long time. And Jesus was not unclear, speaking in ambiguous and muddy ways. He was not speaking like that. He was speaking in very plain, clear, conspicuous ways. That's the way he was speaking. Yes, he used illustrations like bread and water, and door, and shepherd. He used illustrations like that, but they weren't illustrations that were so confusing that nobody could understand them. Right? And yet, that's what they do. That's what people do. 
They take the obvious truth of the Bible and say it's unclear. I don't know what it means. And why do they do it? They do it because they are blinded in their sin. They are blind sinners. They are unwilling to open their eyes and see because they love their sin. They love their sin and then they throw shade on the Bible by saying the Bible is dark, it's cloudy, it's murky. I don't know what it means. When they do know what it means, when the Bible says you must believe in Jesus Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, they say, I don't know what that means. When the Bible says that idolaters and adulterers and fornicators and drunkards and swindlers shall not inherit the kingdom of God, they say, I don't know what that means. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. You see what I'm saying? Whenever something is confronted, then they say, that's unclear. That's ambiguous. Yeah, you're confusing me. No. They know what it means and they don't want to give up their sin. We cannot say that God is unclear in what we need to do, what we need to know, what we need to believe, how we need to live in reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ, in reference to our salvation. We cannot make that assertion. This verse, John 6, 47, reminds us of the fact he has clearly said, he who believes has eternal life. Furthermore, it says to believe. To believe. It does require our confidence in what we hear. It does require that we are hearing something that we know is good for us and beneficial for us to believe in that for our good, for the good of our soul. We must believe that that is the case, which is true because he's talking about eternal life. He who believes has eternal life. He is presenting to us the need to believe that the result of our belief would be that we have eternal life. But when we think of the gospel, or when people generally think of the gospel, they don't think of it as something being presented as good. Unless, of course, it's health and wealth, the prosperity gospel, then they'll say, yeah, that's good. But when we're talking about eternal life, when we're talking about forgiveness of sins, when we're talking about being justified by grace through faith in Christ, when they hear those words, when they think that they need to believe that Jesus died and rose again for their sins, if for them to think of those concepts, those truths, they don't look at it as good. They don't look at it as worthy of believing to receive eternal life. In fact, they begin to discount the message and the messenger. They discount the message, deny the message, and also discount and deny the messenger. In this case, just imagine, if eternal life is presented to you, you're told that when you die, that there is a life hereafter. When you die, your soul will exist. That there is a day of resurrection. And one day, even though your body dies and goes to the grave, 
Your soul continues to live. And then one day when Christ returns, he will raise up your body and join it again with your soul. And you will live that way forever and ever. When the Bible teaches that, there's either eternal life with Christ forever or eternal punishment with Satan, all the demons, and all the wicked people of the world forever and ever. There's only two outcomes. There's either heaven or hell, eternal life or eternal punishment. Now, does that not sound wonderful? Does that not sound good? Does that not sound like it's going to benefit you, your soul, your existence for all eternity? Especially when you hear that hell is a quite unpleasant place to be. When the Bible says, in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Bible says that it is a place of torment. When the Bible says that the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. When the Bible describes it as though somebody is so thirsty, so parched in his mouth that he just wants a drop of water to cool off his tongue. When the Bible describes it this way, place as utter darkness or outer darkness, when it says things like that, is it not a frightful place to go? Correct? Nobody likes to, and we've all done this, put our hands on a hot stove. But can you imagine having your, not only your hand on the hot stove, but your whole body in the flames of a gas Stove. Would you like that? Your whole body in the flames of a gas stove forever and ever. Because the flames are real flames, right? No. That's what the Bible presents. However, to avoid that, to receive the forgiveness of God, eternal life, to be reconciled to God because of our sins, what must we do? Believe to have eternal life. Is it very complicated? No, it's not complicated at all. This is the gospel, the true gospel. And notice also in verse 47, there's a very small word, but it's a key word. It says, he who believes has eternal life. Has. Has does not mean might have, could have, possibly have, hope to have. There's no uncertainty with this expression. This word expresses certainty. That's one. Number two, this word has expresses the present possession of eternal life. Not the potential possible future possession of eternal life, but the present possession of eternal life. Present possession. We, if we believe, we can know right now that we belong to Christ, that we've been reconciled to God, that we're no longer alienated and enemies of God. We have the peace of God, the comfort of God, the, the Spirit of God dwelling in us, and we know that we have eternal life. Romans 8, Romans eight sixteen says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We know that we belong to Him. 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 13. In order that you may know that you have it, have eternal life, he says. Know that we have it. This is a wonderful blessing that we experience now. We know that we have it. This is quite unlike the false interpretations of the Bible that abound in Christianity and the false religions of the world that abound with the torment of the thought that they don't know, they have no confidence of what will happen to them upon death. There are many, many people within Christianity who misinterpret the Bible to say, we cannot know now that we are saved. We cannot have assurance now that we possess eternal life. They say that in Christianity. But also the false religions, the major religions of the world, they teach something similar, that they cannot know that right now they possess eternal life. Even the founder of Islam, Muhammad, did not know whether he was going to receive eternal life. He did not know, as it is asserted in the Quran. He did not know that he would receive eternal life. So if he did not know, why should we follow him? Don't we need to know, want to know, before it's too late? And how is that found in Jesus Christ, in the Word of Christ here in the Bible? Further, we go on to verse 48. John 6, 48. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Constantly, the Bible, and even in the book of John, the thoughts or our faith is focused on Christ. And here again, he says it in very, very clear terms. I am the bread of life. You don't need to go elsewhere. Come to me, Christ says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 14, 6. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 1 John 2, 22. 1 John 2, 22 to 23. 1 John 2, 22 to 23. This passage applies to both Jews and Muslims. Jews and Muslims and anybody else who says that Jesus is not the Son of the Father or the Christ. 1 John 2, 22. Who is a liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. We are liars if we deny that Jesus is the Christ. We are liars. Either God's telling the truth or we're telling the truth. 
If God's telling the truth and we don't believe it, that makes us liars. This is the Antichrist. We are one of the Antichrists against Christ. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Means that if we deny the identity and the ministry of the Son, we are actually denying God the Father. This is why Jews, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, whoever they may be, if they deny the true identity of the Son and the true ministry of the Son, then they're also denying God the Father, even though they claim to know God the Father. They don't know God the Father if they deny the Son. For he says in verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Does not have the Father. Does not have the Father's favor. Does not belong to the Father. Is not a child of the Father. Nothing like that. However, if we confess the Son, we have the Father also. Confess the Son and have the Father also. Jesus, John 6, 48, clearly says, I am the bread of life. He calls himself the bread of life. It's not the first time he has used this expression. He said so in John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In John 6, 35, we have a repetition in John 6, 47 and 48. The way of eternal life is to believe in Christ, the bread of life. We must believe that he is the bread of life. We eat bread, physical bread, but we need eternal bread. We need spiritual bread, who is Christ himself. So he clearly tells them, I am the bread of life. Now, if he is the bread of life, meaning eternal life, don't go anywhere else. Don't believe in anyone else. Only believe in him. Partake of him, he's saying. Eat of him, which is what he continues to describe. Verse 49. Christ speaks, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. We first... Notice in 49, he says, your fathers. But wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus also a Jew? Yes. Wasn't he also a descendant, just like they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes, and the tribe of Judah? Yes, that's true. But here he says, your fathers, because he's drawing attention to the fact that they are clinging to their ancestors, but they're clinging to their disobedient ancestors. They're clinging to their unbelieving ancestors. They're not clinging to their believing ancestors like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, Hezekiah. They're not clinging to them. They are clinging to the wrong ancestors, to ones like Ahab and Jezebel, to ones like Jeroboam. They're clinging to the wrong Ancestors, So he calls them or says to them, your fathers. Now, specifically in this context, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. He means that 
crowd of people, millions of people, 600,000 soldiers, male soldiers, young men, 20 years old and upwards, were numbered to be 600,000. If you include the others, we have millions of people there in the wilderness. But very few of those millions of people in the wilderness actually believed. Few of them actually believed in the gospel. Most of them, with most of them, God was not well pleased. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 6 teaches us. They, God was not well pleased with them. And why did they die in the wilderness? Remember, if we read in Numbers 14, in that chapter, they died in the wilderness because they refused to believe the gospel and the promises of God to conquer the land of Canaan. They refused to believe that, so God said that they were going to die in the wilderness even though they ate the miraculous manna. Remember, the miraculous bread that was provided for them six days of the week. They refused to believe in the gospel. They partook of the physical, miraculous bread, but they still died in the wilderness because they were unbelievers. Right? That's why he says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. They still died. Why did they still die in the wilderness, both physically and spiritually? Because they refused to believe in the same gospel that Moses believed and preached. They refused to believe that. That's why they died. But here he gives them an opportunity to believe. Verses 50 to 51. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Who is this bread? He said in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Correct? And in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. He's calling himself that bread, the ultimate eternal bread that they need for eternal life. He says to them, this came down out of heaven, and what is the result? What would be the benefit? So that one may eat of it and not die. We must eat of the bread of life, meaning we must believe in the bread of life to avoid death. In verse 50, does he mean that we're going to avoid physical death or eternal death? The second death. He means eternal death, the second death. If we partake of him, if we eat of him, which is a way of saying if we believe in him, then we will not experience that second death, the eternal death of the lake of fire, hell. John 11. John 11. 11, 23. John eleven twenty three. Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And Jesus comes to see Lazarus in the, in the, in the grave and to bring him up, raise him up from the dead. 
But before he does so, Jesus is talking in, in certain ways that is unclear to them at points. But he clarifies. And look at verse 23. 11, 23. Jesus said to her, Your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, that is, he who comes into the world. Martha believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. She believed all that, and she also calls him Lord. And she knows that there is a future day of resurrection. And she knows that Lazarus, a believer, will rise on that day of resurrection. It says in 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. So if we believe in Christ, we shall live forever even if we die physically now. Verse 26, and everyone who lives, lives physically now and believes in me now shall never die then forever and ever. That's what he means. And she understood. So he says, do you believe this? He's confirming her faith. This is the same in John 6, verse 50. If we believe or partake, if we eat of the bread of life, if we eat of Christ, then we will not die forever and ever. In hell in the lake of fire, in eternal punishment. But we shall live forever and ever. Verse 51. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. I am the living bread. He stresses that he is the bread of life. Not one that ultimately brings death, but one that brings life. He's this living bread. He came down out of heaven. Do we see how often Jesus makes a claim in this chapter and actually throughout Scripture, but especially in this chapter, how he exists in heaven. He comes down to the earth for a purpose, then he's going to leave the earth, go back to heaven for a while, and then he's going to return to the earth when he comes in judgment and to raise everyone from the dead. And then we will be with him forever. The scripture has this paradigm over and over again. This is why he's saying this, that we must understand that we understand that he came down out of heaven to accomplish redemption. If he keeps claiming this, and somebody says, Jesus did not come from heaven. Jesus is not the Son of God. Jesus does not have deity like the Father. Jesus is not eternal. He did not come from heaven. 
then what do we make Christ? We make him a liar. Is that not what everybody does? Everyone who rejects Christ, one way or another, they will say, I don't believe that Jesus came from heaven to the earth to proclaim the truth. And I don't believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead for my sins, and that he ascended into heaven, and that he's going to come again and judge the world, and he's going to judge me and punish me and throw me into hell. I don't believe any of that. The people here, his audience, they did the same thing. We see from verse 66, John 6, 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They refused to believe that he came down out of heaven for the purpose of dying on the cross and rising from the dead so that we might believe in him for eternal life. They refused to believe that he came down. However, if we do believe, verse 51, what is the benefit? What is the consequence? 51 says, If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. If we eat, if we partake, if we consume, and what is this? It's an illustration of belief. Just like he said in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He has water and he has bread, and if we partake of his bread and water, and what does he mean? Believe. Believe in him. Then we live forever. Those ancestors of these unbelieving people, the unbelieving ancestors of the unbelieving unbelieving contemporaries of Christ, they did not partake of the spiritual meaning of the manna. They did not partake of Christ who is symbolized in the miraculous manna. This is what the apostle means in 1 Corinthians 11. Keep your place here and turn, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. He shows us here, 1 Corinthians 10, 1, that the ancestors of the people, of the, the unbelieving ancestors of the unbelieving people had many benefits, many illustrations, many types, many symbols And they refused to understand the true meaning of those symbols or types. They refused to believe in them. He illustrates for us here. Chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. He calls it spiritual food, meaning the manna. It was physical in that they consumed it, but it had a spiritual meaning, the spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Yes, God provided miraculous water from the rock for them to drink, right? He provided wells and a rock from which they could drink. It was physical in that it quenched 
their physical thirst. But it was spiritual because it was meant to signify, to symbolize Jesus Christ. That's why he calls it spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happen as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. In chapter 6, John 6, 51, he's promising them, he's holding out to them the opposite hope, the opposite benefit, and that is, don't be like your unbelieving ancestors. Instead, believe in me and live forever, forever and ever. Further, and the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, at this point, he is explaining that he must die for their sins. He's explaining that he must die for their sins. He is not saying that whenever the church serves the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, the Mass, whenever the church serves that, then you are guaranteed or assured your standing of receiving eternal life. That's not the way to obtain it, and that's, that's not the way to maintain it to receive eternal life. We must say that because there are churches that think that something uh, magical, superstitious, miraculous happens when we partake of the bread and the cup. They actually teach, and the people believe, that when that happens, then instantly you have assurance of eternal life. Instantly, you're going to the heaven. Or instantly, at that time, you're maintaining your eternal life. For if you did not partake of it, then you would lose eternal life. Churches teach this. But they, and they teach it based on passages such as this one. But this passage, this verse, and this chapter is not teaching anything of that sort. It is simply teaching that it's necessary for Jesus' physical, fleshly, earthly, material body of flesh and bones. It's necessary for him to die on the cross and for us to believe in the purpose of his bodily death on the cross. That's what the passage is teaching. Pure and simple. That's all it's teaching. That it's necessary to believe that his physical body will die on the cross for our sins. This is what he means when he says, The bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. He has to give his flesh, deliver over his flesh, fleshly body, physical body, for there to be life given to the people. Because he died for them, therefore they can have life. That's what he's teaching. That's all he's teaching. And the fact that they thought he was talking about 
literal consumption of his body is shown in verse 52. And then Jesus clarifies he's not talking about that. They say in 52, the Jews therefore began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? He's not talking about his body being consumed by them in any literal way. Whether literal in terms of cannibalism or literal in terms of the bread and the cup. You're not partaking of Christ in a bloody way like in cannibalism or as Catholics say, the unbloody sacrifice of the bread and the cup. It's not a bloody sacrifice and it's not an unbloody sacrifice. We're not partaking of Christ in any of those literal ways into our mouth and our body. That's not what he meant. He goes on to clarify that. But for now, we see, what does he say? He has to give his body, deliver his body over so that he might die. How do we know he's talking about his physical body on the cross that we must believe? John 12. John 12. John 12, 32. John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. When he's lifted up from the earth, he's talking about him being raised on a cross. And he's saying this in a way that is illustrating his physical death. John the Apostle in verse 33 tells us clearly that that's what he meant. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. That's how he's going to give up his flesh. Also now, John 10. John 10 John 10, 17. John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. He says he's going to lay down his life on his own initiative. And this is coming from the Father, from the commandment of the Father. And nobody is actually taking it away from him. Of course, Pilate sentences him. They all condemn him. The chief priests also demand that he dies. The Roman soldiers impale him on the cross. All of these things happen, right? Judas Iscariot has to betray him. He dies for our sins, so we have complicity in that too. All of this is true, but ultimately, Jesus says, no one's taking it away from me. I'm laying it down on my own initiative. And the Father is in agreement with it. In fact, the Father commands it. So he's talking about that his body, his fleshly body, is going to die on the cross for their sins. 
He's going to give up his life so that we might have life. That's all he means in John 6, 51. Furthermore, when he says the life of the world, the life of the world, this term, the world, does he mean that since he's going to die on the cross, that everyone in the world will receive eternal life? No, he does not mean that because he's been stressing throughout this chapter, even in our passage in verse 47, that it's necessary to believe. Therefore, when he says he's giving his body or his flesh for the life of the world, he doesn't mean because I give my flesh for the life of the world, therefore, every individual, every person in the world from the beginning of creation to the end of time, will receive eternal life. He does not mean that. He's using the word world in a limited sense, in a qualified sense. We know that in our context from verse 47. He who believes has eternal life. This is also the context of John 3.16, which many people misinterpret. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God the Father gave His only begotten Son because He loved the world. But who in the world is going to benefit from it, according to John 3.16? Whoever believes in Him. Whoever believes in Him Will, will receive eternal life, is what John 3.16 declares. This is what John 6.51 is also meaning. The life of the world is the believing world will benefit. We already saw earlier in John 6 that it is the elect world, the chosen world, that eventually becomes the believing world, Right? The elect or the chosen world is in verses 44 to 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's the elect world right there in 44 to 45. The believing world is in 646 to 51. 646 to 51, the believing world. Now, this might sound strange to some ears, to many ears, in fact, but Jesus has explained this elsewhere. We often think that when the Bible says the world, that it must mean every person in the world. Let's look at a couple of examples to show that that is not the case, even in the book of John even from the mouth of Christ himself. John 15, 18. John 15, 18 and 19. John 15, 18 says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world Hates you. There is no way the the word world in verses 18 and 19 means 
every single person in the world. In fact, it means all of the unbelieving world. If the world hates you, who's the you? The believers. Correct? Very clear teaching in that passage. The world means all of the unbelieving people. Even then, in our time, when the world hates us today, does it mean that everybody in the world is literally slandering us and literally persecuting us and literally actually threatening to put us to death? No. It might be one man. It might be 10 of them. It might be 14, 15 of them. It might be 100 of them. But it's not going to be billions of them, all the rest of the people in the world who live while we are alive right now, correct? But we say, just like it says in John 15, 18, the world hates us. Yes, the world hates us, meaning the unbelieving people we encounter in the world hate us. Not 7 billion people hate us or 8 billion people hate us. That's not what we mean, even though we cite John 15. Also, John 17, did Jesus, did Jesus intend by his death to benefit every individual in the world or to make it possible to benefit every individual in the world? Was he, when he died, trying to save everyone or going to save everyone? Did he mean that? No. Look, for example, John 17. John 17, verse 2. This is Christ praying to the Father. Even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. That's a qualified all. All that the Father gives to the Son, the Son will give eternal life. 17, 2. He says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I ask on their behalf. Whose behalf is he asking? Is it only the 11 disciples or is it for all of us too? Because he says, I do not ask on behalf of the world. He's not asking on behalf of everybody else in the world, but only those that are given to Christ. For they are yours. For they whom you have given me belong to you, Father. Furthermore, verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who is the son of perdition that perished? Judas Iscariot. That means that when Jesus came into the world, he did not come to guarantee and ensure salvation of every person in the world because Judas Iscariot is excluded. Correct? And if Judas Iscariot is excluded, who else is just like Judas Iscariot? Well, many people are. Many, many people are. Furthermore, we see in verse 20. Verse, verses 20 to 21. John 17, 20. 
I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 20. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Do we not have the word of the apostles now? We have the word of the apostles and we believe that way. Correct? Therefore, he prayed on our behalf. He did not pray on behalf of those who never believe. But he prayed on our behalf. Because he says in verse 9, I do not ask on behalf of the world. The unelect and the unbelieving world, I don't ask on their behalf, but I do ask on behalf, verse 20, of those who believe in me through their word. This is teaching us that this word world has to be understood in a qualified sense according to the context. And in our context in John 6, he is not teaching that there is a guarantee that since he dies on the cross, that every single person is going to be saved. Judas is the exception we saw. And there are many others who are exceptions. Um, So... That's clear. And then when he does say world, sometimes he means the believing world and sometimes he means the unbelieving world. In John 3.16, John 6.51, he means the believing world receive eternal life. Not the unbelieving world. In fact, when he died, he's praying that his death benefits the elect believing world. Does that include you? Does that include you? Do you believe? It's available, if you are hearing, for you to believe and to repent of your sins. Don't delay, but believe today. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.